Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Professor Sarah Mednick. Sarah is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine, and author of The Hidden Power of the Downstate and Take a Nap, Change Your Life. In the episode, she explains what the terms upstate and downstate mean, lifestyle changes we should all make to optimize our time spent in the downstate, negative health effects that can occur after spending too much time in the upstate, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, Dry Farm Wines. Did you know that alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post ingredients or nutrition facts on their bottles? That's how they're able to sneak sugar and other additives into their products. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come up with a solution. Their natural wines are lab tested to ensure they're sugar-free, lower in sulfites and alcohol, and also free from other industrial additives. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wine, even the top-rated expensive conventional wines can give me headaches and make me feel gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by the flavor and quality of their products, as well as their top-notch customer service. To get a bottle of Dry Farm Wines for just a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com slash thehealthinvestment or click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Sarah. Enjoy! Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, so great to hear from you and be here. I'd love if you could start by telling us a bit about your background, specifically, why did you want to write The Power of the Downstate? Well, uh, I'm a sleep researcher, and I have a seven-bedroom sleep lab at University of California, Irvine. And I've been studying what um, the body and the mind are doing during sleep to get us into such a great restorative state and to help us with memory consolidation and creativity increasing and, and alertness and being ready for the next day. And in my research, I was both studying what was happening in the brain using EEG just to look at the electrical activity. But then I was also studying what was happening in the body, specifically the autonomic nervous system, um, measuring heart rate uh, with ECG. And I discovered that actually both people, are, a lot of neuroscientists focus on the brain and you know show all these different sleep stages that help us with all these different cognitive benefits. But then I started just finding, oh, it's really also the autonomic nervous system that's contributing a lot to these um, very critical downstates that I call them, which is these periods of time where we can replenish all of our resources and work on, you know, consolidating the experiences of our day and getting to an emotionally better place and enhancing creativity. And so the book is really about all of the different ways that we can access these downstates, um, both when we are asleep, but also when we're awake, um, to enhance the restorative aspects of our lives and, um, and how important that is for all the, the you know, setting of our goals and achievement of our goals. You wrote a book about sleep and naps. What made you want to go a step further to look at our body's many interconnected systems? Yeah, so the, the nap uh, book came out when I was finishing my <clears throat> PhD and was, you know, and sleep research at the time was in its infancy in terms of how sleep was really being understood. And we were really only measuring sleep in terms of minutes in each sleep stage. 
And there's been a sort of revolution in science with more and more research using more um, interesting kind of physiological measurements and more computational measurements to understand what's happening underneath the skin. And what we were discovering was really exciting and showing how the brain and the body are communicating in these incredibly important ways. Um, and those were really the contributors. It wasn't just stages of sleep, but it was really um, the way that the parasympathetic system um, was activated during sleep and how we can activate the parasympathetic system when we're not asleep as well. Mm. Was there a moment in your life that this new kind of bigger way of looking at it really clicked for you? Like, did you feel like you were spending too much time in what you call the upstate? I mean, I think we all spend way too much time in the upstate. Um, I think that the research really hit me when when we first got our first data back from um, looking at both the brain and the body, both the EEG and the ECG. And I found that, you know, we could actually uh, account for 70% of the increases in performance that we see across sleep by measuring both the brain and the body. And realizing, wow, that's you know that 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 the brain is only contributing a certain proportion, um, you know, sort of about forty percent or so, but that the other thirty percent is really coming from the body. So really getting interested in trying to understand um, how sleep is a great window into um, these restorative processes um, that really help us get to a more um, uh, fully optimized uh, space. How did you come up with the terms upstate and downstate? They come from sleep research. So the the oh. most restorative uh, the most restorative brainwave that we that we create when we're in deep sleep is called the slow wave, and uh, you know our brains are very rhythmic and the activity in the brain is very rhythmic, and so you get these rhythms that can be fast rhythms. Um, when we're excited, or they can be very slow rhythms when we're in deep sleep. And a rhythm has two parts. It has an upstate where it's the active part where the brain is highly active. And right after that, it goes to into what's called a downstate, which is when all the neurons are silent. And mm -hmm. that downstate turns out to be the most important aspect of um, all of the helpful aspects of sleep, such as the consolidation, but also the flushing of the toxins that can develop um, in the brain when we're awake. And so if we don't flush those toxins out, they stay in the brain and they create these tangles and plaques in the brain that then lead to dementia and Alzheimer's. So it's really the discovery that there's this kind of downstate in sleep and then seeing, oh, there's actually this upstate, downstate everywhere you look in the autonomic nervous system, and you can look at it across the 24-hour cycle that the daytime is the upstate and the entire night is the downstate. Hmm. Uh, I once had another sleep expert, or maybe I read about it somewhere, but talk about sleeping as throwing your clothes into the washing machine and they're getting all clean in terms of cleaning your brain. And then if the wash cycle doesn't finish, so if you don't sleep enough, then the clothes just kind of sit in there and you know, you don't want to leave your clothes in the washing machine for a long time because they get yeah. kind of like moldy and gross. Yeah. <laughs> but I really like that. I haven't thought about that analogy in a while. Have you ever heard that before? Or? No, I, I mean, it's a good analogy because, you know, you want to get it into the dryer and then get it unmoldy <laughs> and kind of separated and all, all this <laughs> stuff. That's exactly right. And, and, and sleep does help you um, with so many of those things, cleaning the brain and also getting your ideas separated so that you understand the difference between, you know, all, you know, think about how life is very complicated and sleep helps you sort of piece apart how complicated it is and understand it. Mm. So how much time optimally should we be spending in the upstate and the downstate? I mean, really optimally, there would be sort of an equal proportion um, or it's not necessarily equal as in time, but that the that the intensity of the upstate should match the intensity of the downstate. So, um, you know, it's almost like a two thirds to one third ratio. We and if you think about the daytime, you can divide the day into thirds, where there's the first two thirds you're in the daytime, and then the last third you're in sleep. And that's actually true also of the slow wave. The slow wave is is you know basically this wave that has a lot of excitatory and then 
um, a, a little bump down and in, in the uh, downstate where everything <clears throat> silences. Oh, sorry, I'm, <clears throat> I have to clear my throat. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so it really depends on like how much, uh, you know, there's really interesting studies in sleep where you, where you can give people much more things to learn during the day and then they show more slow waves at night. Um, and so, so that it's, it's really experience dependent that the more information you intake, the more downstate you need. Oh, that's interesting. So then is it true then that anybody who's kind of on during the day should expect that they'll get a really good sleep that night or does it not always work that way? Well, it doesn't always work that way because people don't appreciate sleep, right? And so oh, then right. they kind of don't use sleep as the recharging mechanism that it's really meant to be. Um, and, and, and that is true, right? That people really uh, kind of disregard sleep um, and then they hope that the amount of sleep that they're getting is going to make up for all the upstating that they've been doing. And so it's sometimes it's hard to get people to sleep more, but there's a lot of things that you can do during the day that also bring up this downstate and help you get into a more restorative mode so that by the end of the day, you maybe don't have to put so much pressure on sleep to answer all of your needs. Mm. I know. I see a lot of very famous, productive people bragging about how little sleep they get. Like I was just reading the other day that I think Martha Stewart gets four hours of sleep a night and it seems like something she's proud of or kind of talks about a lot. And so then it gives maybe this idea that you can be super successful and productive and that's a cool thing to not sleep that much. Um, but that's, that's not good, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and especially there's a lot of different sleep need. She may be somebody who's what's called a short sleeper who actually doesn't need that much sleep. Um, but that's a very, very small majority of people. And the, you know, most of us need, you know, around eight hours of sleep. And so without that, we would really be dysfunctional. But again, you know, what is she doing during the day that helps her compensate for that sleep loss? She may be meditating. She may be spending time um, doing exercise and in nature and really eating right and doing deep breathing and all sorts of things that also help compensate for that sleep loss. So people who are really big meditators, they also sleep less. Mm, interesting. Uh, so what are some of the things you were mentioning, meditation, it sounds like, or eating right, things that can help you optimize the downstate or even help you, it sounds like, enter it during the daytime? Mm -hmm. um, anything that really charges up that um, parasympathetic, I call it in, in the book Restore. So there's two different branches to the autonomic nervous system. One is the sympathetic or fight or flight. And in the book, I call it rev because it really revs you up. So that revved up state is always met with um, a response from the other branch of the autonomic nervous system called the parasympathetic or rest and digest. And that's trying to bring you back down to baseline or some sort of safe space. And in the book, I call it restore because you're restoring yourself back to some um, safe space. Uh, so what can you do to amplify restore processes during the day? The first thing that you know everybody should understand is that your breathing is the strongest and most direct route to enhancing your restorative system. So we're usually breathing quite rapidly and in shallow breath. And a lot of people do mouth breathing, which is also very um, fast breathing and shallow breathing. So engaging in deep, slow nasal breathing during the day, you know, on average, it's usually about five counts on the inhale and five counts on the exhale. And that immediately ushers you into this state of deep relaxation um, because it really tells your brain, hey, I don't need to be panicking. I don't need to be worried. I don't need to feel unsafe, which is that rapid, short breathing. I have control of my environment. I have control of everything in my life and I can breathe really deeply. So it's a good signal to just always have in your back pocket while you're driving, while you're cooking, while you're listening to a podcast, right? Is just to get into that deep, slow nasal breathing. The other stuff is, is you know, also about thinking about how your daytime rhythm is um, scheduled. So we are very rhythmic animals and every 
our whole system is rhythmic. We have like optimal periods being active and optimal periods for downstate, but also all the subsystems are rhythmic. Um, our heart is rhythmic. Our metabolism is rhythmic. Our brain is rhythmic. Um, so we have optimal periods where we are primed and ready for activity. Um, and an activity for say for me metabolism is eating, right? Because it takes a lot of um, it takes a lot of energy to eat um, and to process food. And so when we are in daytime. Um, that period is the upstate of our metabolic system. And so it's really great to actually um, eat during the, you know, time-restricted eating is all about this idea of that you can eat during the upstate and then stop eating when your body is going into its natural downstate. And, you know, insulin, which is very critical for moving our glucose into the cells, that decreases the amount of insulin that you have in your body decreases across the day and so it's a signal to say hey i'm really not as efficient and i'm not in the upstate as much as i was earlier and so when you eat during the evening when you're in this kind of inefficient state um, your body turns that food more quickly into fat um, mm -hmm. than into energy that it can use. So there's this idea of eating during the upstate and then not eating in the evening when you're in this metabolic downstate. You're also your heart rhythm. Um, it's very, it's a lot of work for your heart to be working all day long. And it's very good at being in the upstate during the day. But then at night, it's actually very important to let your heart go into a downstate and not get it all revved up not get it too excited and go into, um, you know, a downstate where it can go into, where it can, it can slow its processing and be in a little bit of a restorative mode. Um, and that also increases restorative processing. Meditation is a great way to access that. Um, yoga is really great because not only is it a form of exercise, but every movement is associated with a deep inhale and a deep exhale through the nose. Um, so that is also another way to um, amplify the downstate. So if someone's listening and they really enjoy exercising in the evening, maybe after the kids go to bed, that could be kind of backfiring? That's right. So depending on the type of exercise, usually um, if you're doing weight training in the evening, that's usually not as um difficult for the the cardiovascular system and the cardiovascular system can can handle a little bit of weight training in the evening but if you're doing hardcore cardiovascular training at night that's keeping your heart in the upstate for a long time and it takes a long time for um, the heart to slow down enough for you to get to sleep so trying to move the exercise to the morning time or at least four hours before your bedtime is a really good way of ensuring that you're then going to get into the downstate. Is four hours before your bedtime just a good rule even for eating, let's say? Yes, exactly. Four, three to four hours, exactly. Yeah, yeah. to be okay. able to stop eating, stop doing anything that's going to suddenly wake the bear, basically. Oh, okay. Sounds good. I mean, that's really bad news for my nightly popcorn <laughs> habit but yeah and then and then you know the food that you do eat you know can you make it so that it's not a rush of uh, glucose into the system such as like the highly processed food like popcorn may be a little bit better because it's it's a little bit light you know and it doesn't it's in and it, it probably doesn't harm you as much as say like a big vat of ice cream oh okay all right, good. So keep my popcorn. <laughs> no, <laughs> or just move it a little bit earlier if you're going to yeah. have it. No, that makes sense. Move it. I mean, if I go to bed at 11, have it before 8 p.m., which mm -hmm. seems manageable. Mm -hmm. um, when you were speaking about uh, number of hours of sleep, how there's very few people who require very little. Most people are kind of around the eight-ish range. Are there also very few people who require more than eight? Because I feel like I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah, there's people who are long sleepers as well, right? And they need around 10 okay. hours of sleep and or even more. Um, and that's, you know, and, and, and how do you manage, you know, to really find all that sleep? So the first book about napping, Take a Nap, Change Your Life, is all about how you can integrate naps during the day to add on to your sleep amount as well. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily have to be all at once at night. Right. It could be 
total because I know that's what they do with little kids, right? I don't have kids yet, but um, they say sort of the number of hours they're sleeping every day and they take it on a 24 hour cycle, including their naps. So at certain ages, you're supposed to sleep a certain number of hours. And so for adults, we can kind of think about it that way as well. Yeah. And if you think about how, you know, babies when or children, when they don't take a nap, they actually get more revved up and it's harder for them to get to sleep at night. Some adults are, are similar, right? Is it, is it if you don't rest during the day, then you actually get more worked up and you get this kind of overexcited. Um, and so it gets harder to go to sleep at night. So, so doing those rest breaks during the day can help you fall asleep at night. And it doesn't necessarily, you said rest break, so it doesn't have to be sleeping. Right. Because I'm a really bad napper. I've tried for years, and especially in my 20s, I would try to take naps on weekends and I just can never fall asleep. And then I just lie there and feel very frustrated, but I guess I'm still resting. Yeah. But if you're getting really frustrated, something? then it's probably yeah. not, it is not, it's okay. not helping you. But, but if you could get past, if you could kind of change your expectations that you're just taking a rest and that you're engaging in slow, deep breathing and you're letting yourself get into, you know, letting the thoughts just kind of pass by and not hold on to anything and more into sort of a meditative state, that is a very powerful tool to get into the down state. And so don't get frustrated. So I have a ton of research (laughs) looking at nappers versus non-nappers because non-nappers, you know, they really express a lot of, um, uh, frustration and they hate napping and they wake up and they feel terrible. Um, and so we were trying to, we we're really curious. So like, what's going on with these non-nappers? Can we teach them to nap? Um, the first study that we did, we looked and saw actually, well, non-nappers get into deep sleep very quickly and they stay there during their naps. Whereas nappers stay in lighter sleep. They can go into deep sleep, but then they come right back out of it. And so when non-nappers wake up from a nap, they actually feel really groggy whereas nappers feel really alert. Um, But then we tried to teach uh, the non-nappers to nap over a month of of nap training. And we actually found no benefits um, to the nap, even after a month. They they never got any cognitive benefits. Their sleep never got any lighter. Um, So to me, it really seems like that there's two different types of people. Some people can nap and some people can't, but everyone needs a break, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to take a nap. Okay. I love that. Um, yeah, I'm one of, I think I'm a non-napper or I guess I know I am by the description you just gave. Cause yeah. I wake up super groggy and then I have a really hard time falling asleep that night. If I ended up taking a nap, which is again on a very rare occasion, Yeah, that's how I say, I always know I'm sick if I can fall asleep midday because yes. something is wrong if I am sleeping when it's light outside. Um, so, but that's good to know. So if you could lie there, you could close your eyes, you could take deep breaths is there an amount of time that's ideal for a napper or non-napper to have some type of formal rest? Is it like 20 minutes I've heard or? Well, 20 minutes is great for a power nap. Um, it depends on, in, for the nappers, it depends on what you're trying to get out of it. Um, so in my first book, I talk about how um, the different sleep stages lead to different types of improvements. And so depending on whether you want to get into a longer nap with slow wave sleep, then you're going to get better, deeper memory improvements, spatial memory, different types of, um, of just uh, um, uh, learning like navigation routes and learning where you are in space and time, um, and also a lot more of that brain cleaning. But if you take even a longer nap that's up to 90 minutes, you get into REM sleep, and that's the time where you have all these crazy dreams, and that's also good for creativity and perceptual processing. So there's benefits to... Um, having the longer nap, but not everybody has the time. Um, so we often just sort of say, well, why don't you just try the 20 minute nap and see how that goes. Um, for meditation, it really, you can actually do much shorter because you don't have to get into all these different sleep stages. So you can do sort of, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of deep, uh, deep breathing and meditation and get very nice benefits there. But of course, longer meditation is great too. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, 
I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at The Health Investment. Now, back to the episode. If you lie down and just take a rest without falling asleep, or if you do deep breathing or some type of formal meditation, can all of that help with the brain cleaning as well? Or is it just when you're in a sleep stage? It seems like uh, that it's a combination of both having a big amount of restore processing, but also being in the slow wave state. So it seems for now that uh, deep sleep is the optimal time for that. And there hasn't been any evidence that we can do uh, this glymphatic clearance, this kind of brain, brain cleaning during relaxed waking. But but that mm-hmm. has yet to really be examined. Okay. Is reading also relaxed waking or is that still involving cognitive processes? So not so much. Um, not as much because it's it's more involving. But me, of course, t- it's, it is a very downstate thing to do is to read for pleasure and to just to relax. Uh, interestingly, there is a really interesting study that looked at reading on a tablet versus reading a book. And it turns out that people engage in more deep breathing when they're reading a book than a tablet. Um, and so, or, you know, on a screen. So that the screen time for some reason, does not let you have these deep sighs and these deep relaxation sighs that allow you to get into these deeper states of relaxation. So um, the good old book thing might be really good for you. But of course, you know, downstate can also be achieved by gardening. So, you know, listening to a podcast and just gardening and being in nature, being in nature is a very, very big thing about, you know, getting into the downstate, getting away from the office and the pavement and uh, the concrete and the walls and just being with trees and breathing deeply and um, being in something that's much larger than you. You know, we are animals. um, And so we spend a lot of our time not in our natural state. So being in nature is actually conducive to um, getting into a good relaxed a restorative state. What do you think it is about the reading on a Kindle, for example? Is it just the light or the blue light specifically? And can blue light really affect your ability to get into a down state? Um, for sure, blue light is very alerting. It alerts your circadian rhythm that it's time for the upstate. Um, even in cases where the blue light is controlled for it, I think that there's still a benefit to reading with a book. Um, I, we don't really understand why, but for some reason, the book allows you to, maybe it's because you turn the page um, or there's breaks, like visual breaks that you can do between chapters. But there are these moments where we take these like, <sighs> these really big sighs. And we do that when we're reading. And for some reason, we don't do that when we're reading on a screen. And those really big sighs um, really can open up the parasympathetic processing Oh, that's so interesting. And great news for me because I'm addicted to getting hard copy books from the library. So yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is this is fantastic. Good news um, all around. <laughs> yeah, good news all around. And I used to be an English teacher, actually. And we, I taught high school for a number of years. And we would always fight for keeping actual books in the classroom versus having them on screens because we oh, liked kids absolutely. to... Yeah, there's just a different experience you have with reading a book and kids could write notes in the margins or earmark pages. I mean, we just loved that experience as a department. So we continually fought for that together and we kept them. But as the school moved to more technology, they just kept pushing, you know, we have these iPads now, so it'd be so much easier if the kids could just download the books on the iPads. But um, I think they still, I no longer teach, but I think they've still kept the hard copy books there. So I'm rooting for that cause. (laughs) Yeah, I think in, in in a lot of ways, there's some, you know, there's some old universal truths of things, the way things used to be may, you know, we may want to keep a lot of those things the way they used to be, um, because it's the way they have been for a long time. And it's the way that we got used to things. So 
not that I don't, you know, I think the future is interesting and I think it's great and we should embrace technology and there's so many great things that come of that. But I think that it doesn't mean to throw out all the good traditions that we had before as well, that there's a lot of wisdom in, um, in the old universal truths. Mm. What about if somebody is a night shift worker? How can they kind of optimize the upstate and downstate if their circadian rhythm is just thrown completely upside down? Yeah. For for people who have shift work of any kind that involves night shift, it's it's much harder for them because they have to really intentionally regulate their circadian rhythms. So the rhythm what, what circadian rhythm is basically a clock inside your body that's looking for consistent patterns to set the upstate and downstate to say, okay, so now this is the time that you're going to be active. I'm going to supply you with all the glucose and glycogen and ATP that your body's going to need to do all the things that you can do. And it's very much looking for consistent rhythms. So when somebody's a shift work and switching between being active in the downs active during night and and then asleep during the on another day that's really hard on the body um and it, it it's um it, it's a very inefficient system because you don't have the ability to really provide yourself with the energy that you need because of that inconsistency so the best thing somebody in a shift work night shift work condition can do is is take the rhythm that they've decided to or, or that they have to work on um, during the night and keep that on their off days as well. Um, so that gives that really strong um, uh, circadian information so that the body and brain knows that, you know, even though it's nighttime, I'm supposed to be awake. Um, and so then when it comes to work days, you're still, you know, you're in that pattern. And so then you have to keep that pattern when you're not um, doing that. So, so that kind of variable shift work thing is actually the worst thing for health. Um, and yeah. it, it's just hard to do because the rest of the world is not on that schedule. And, you know, so what can you do? Well, there's, there's definitely right now, there's all sorts of ways of blocking the circadian signals that tell you that it's daytime, um, such as using these, uh, their blue light blocking glasses, these like very yellow lens glasses. And what Mm -hmm. they do is because our circadian rhythms are sensitive to blue light and blue light signals that it's daytime, it's the upstate, we should wake up. Um, You can wear these glasses uh, if you want to tell your brain, no, 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 don't wake up. It's still nighttime. You can wear these glasses during the day to help you um, think about this as still downstate time or still nighttime um, and then expose yourself to bright light and the nighttime, which people usually do at work, right? And then not wear the glasses when you want it to be um, upstate day. Hmm. Interesting. So it seems a lot of sleep experts are talking about keeping the same routine as you just mentioned. So if somebody, let's say, goes to bed earlier during the week and wakes up early for work, and then on weekends goes to bed really late and wakes up really late, that can be counterproductive. If try, Is it okay to try to catch up on sleep on the weekend or should you just try to stick to the same routine all the time? So sticking to the same routine is definitely um, recommended because uh, even though you know, the idea that we can catch up on sleep is very prevalent in society, the, the daytime wear and tear that happens by just being actively awake builds up an amount of toxins in the brain that really requires that really good sleep on a nightly basis. And even when, you know, if you have one night of poor sleep or sleep deprivation, there's a kind of a buildup of those toxins that require several nights to get past and, and to sort of equilibrate from. So um, if you really just wait till the weekend to sleep in, then you have this kind of general buildup of um, an, you know, an unhealthy brain state that really would do better if you had regular sleep that would kind of reset you every day to the, to the best state. Aside from that misconception that we can just catch up on sleep over the weekend, what are some other common misconceptions you see spreading around about sleep? Um, I think that the idea that if you, probably the biggest um, 
the biggest thing that people get really upset about is if you have one night of bad sleep, you're going to have a terrible day um, and that there's nothing you're going to do about it. Because what happens is in the middle of the night, you're not sleeping and then you get really anxious and frustrated. And then that, you know, and then you start dreading the day and then you have this, you know, big upstate anxiety response um, while you're trying to be in a relaxed state. Uh, and then, you know, and, and then you think there's nothing I can do. I'm going to have a terrible day. So, so if you had an out, right, if you could say, yes, today, I'm not really sleeping that well, but tomorrow I'm going to take a nap and that's going to actually be my solution, you know, or I'm going to do, I'm going to get up and do morning exercise and have bright light and then go to sleep early tomorrow. Um, I'm going to do meditation and I'm going to get into a downstate by doing deep breathing. If you have a whole bunch of resources or like a toolbox to access the downstate during the day, then even if you have a bad night, then you can still have this kind of feeling of like, it's not the end of the world. I don't need to have an anxiety attack in the middle of the night right now because I'm having poor sleep. Then you can just kind of get into your um, deep breathing, do a little meditation app if you have one. Um, in my book, I talk about autogenic training, which is a really strong method for getting people to get into a downstate and increase a restorative parasympathetic activity, which is about bringing warmth um, and heaviness to different parts of your body. And so I, I give people that training um, in the book as well. Hmm. It seems like if you can't sleep, whether it's a nap or at night, what I'm hearing from you is just don't start stressing about it because <laughs> that's going to not help at all. Yeah. And I think that that's really what you, when you talk to people with insomnia, what they say is, is the, is the, the second you start to think, oh my God, it's another one of those nights. And then it's like, you're off to the races, right? And suddenly mm. it's, you know, you get into this state of, of anxiety and then you just won't be able to sleep. So trying as much to, you know, that's why the it's called CBTI cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's it's not just, you know, doing the hygiene stuff of getting the behavior set, but it's also the cognitive part of really thinking through like what are my what can I do? What are my resources? Don't freak out. Here's what I can do to you know, and then that calms the emotional brain. I like the idea you said too of thinking of all the tools you can use the next day, like an early morning walk or workout and a lunchtime meditation or even just lunchtime resting or going to bed earlier, just again, because I'll have nights like that where I can't sleep and I do kind of get myself worked up, but just to relax yourself and realize it's all going to be okay. Yeah. It's just one night tomorrow. I'll set myself up for success. I'll still have a good day and sort of, yeah, just calm, calm the mind. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and to not think that this is the end of the world. Yeah. Right. Do you think people are spending more time in the upstate now than ever before? Or do you think we're just learning more about sleep and we're more aware of it and talking about it more? Oh, I think for sure there's way. Oh, we are. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think social media has that and, and smartphones have brought the upstate into a kind of a 24 hour zone where you can always turn that thing on or it can always beep at you. It can always tell you what horrible thing is happening somewhere in, you know, some distant country or right in your own backyard. Um, and you can always tap into this world of sort of posting things and looking at who likes what you said and, and the interactions or getting super angry and like, you know, wanting to throw your phone across the room or sending out some angry retort, you know, that, that we've, we've developed this 24 hour access to upstate stress and emotional upheaval. Um, and, and that's just kind of the social media aspect that's very addictive, but then also because we have this, you know, email, we're always on, um, bosses can always get a hold of us, right. That we can always kind of do more. It's not, and, and, and the news doesn't just come, you know, one hour with Walter Cronkite, you know, at, at a certain time and everyone watches that and you turn off the news and you're just with your family. Now you can access it at any time. And people usually access it when they're about to lay down to go to bed. And then they're kind of in this comfort mode and then suddenly, ah, the nightmares of the world all come to them. So I think, and we've had some major, major stresses like the COVID pandemic um, is going to stay with us for a long time. The stress of that and the chronic stress that we were living under um, for years is going to have um, effects that are physical, mental, emotional, um, 
definitely, uh, I think that we're in a very high upstate period. As you were talking, I was thinking, let's say in 1950, people were still in an upstate and a downstate. But now you just said we're kind of in this hyper upstate, which makes the downstate so much harder to achieve when it's time yeah. Yeah. And in fact, we actually need to take more time for the downstate now because we're packing so much stress into the upstate. So instead of simply looking at how can I get better into the downstate, it's probably helpful to also look at how can I not be in a hyper upstate and just uh, kind of normal level upstate. I think that's right. Yeah. I, I talk about them as upstate parties, right? That we have mm-hmm. instant food that just goes straight into fat, right? That just this highly processed food, highly refined food, um, that is, is, it just goes straight into a glucose form. Um, it doesn't get processed over long periods of time. Our, this standard American diet is very upstate driven, very inflammatory driven. People use medication all the time now to, you know, Adderall during the day and Zolpidem or Ambien at night, right? To sort of uppers and downers and um, our work that we, we lionize work overworking, right? We really mm-hmm. create a state where people are proud of how hard they're working. And that's a, kind of a badge of honor. And then, you know, what do people do when they, when it hits five o'clock, they immediately turn to something that just to, to put them out, right? Alcohol. That's um, a, it's like a cry for a downstate, but it's really not a downstate because it actually decreases your sleep and causes addiction. And, um, and I think it's, it's, it's a lick, it's a way of people thinking that they're getting into a liquid downstate, but it actually Mm. doesn't serve the same purpose. And interrupts the downstate, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have as good as sleep when you've been drinking. Exactly. Is that another good thing in terms of the hours before bed? Is it, do you get a better sleep if you stop drinking alcohol three or four hours before you go to sleep? Yeah, I recommend all liquids actually three or four hours before Uh, going to sleep because as we get older, so our circadian rhythm, that's very strong when we're young. It actually controls our bladder as well, um, which is why, you know, you can not pee all night long, right? And that's a great thing to have. But as we get older, that bladder control um, along with our circadian rhythm decreases. So having any kind of liquid in your bladder is, is, is going to wake you up at night to go pee. That's why a lot of older adults are, have very fragmented sleep because they're constantly waking up to go to the bathroom. So starting pretty young, you know, in your forties, you could start to say, well, and especially if you're, if the liquid has alcohol in it, cause that does mess up your sleep. So just stopping all liquids three or four hours before bedtime is a really great thing because it allows your body to process through the alcohol, but it also means that by the time you're going into sleep, you don't have a full bladder. Hmm. Just as you were talking as well, I was thinking of all these ways we're putting ourselves in the hyper upstate, like notifications going off on your phone all the time, especially news alerts, like you said, or email alerts, social media alerts, Watching the news maybe versus reading the news could put you in more of a hyper upstate. So even just small things like that, even though you may not realize they could help with sleep, just turning notifications off, for example, or setting firmer boundaries at work or reading the news instead of watching the news. Could all of those things help put you in the downstate? Yes. I mean, you're, you're, it's, it's so intuitive, right? It just make when you think about it, it makes perfect sense of like, oh, these are things that I probably should just be doing because they make sense to have good health boundaries around, you know, emails from your boss or emails from your employees. Like, what should I do? Like, here's this thing or here, I just submitted this. Like, okay, well, am I going to, because, because it's being asked of me, do I have to rise to the occasion or can I say, yeah, I'll see that in the morning or, you know, that, Mm -hmm. or just send a, a response saying, I will deal with this in the morning um, I've turned off my email for the night. You know, I have a lot of respect for people who send me messages. If I send them an email at like 11 p.m. at night and I get a response back that's like a canned response that says, I, you know, I'll email you in the morning or something, I think mm. that that's really great because it means that this person is just there in their moment with their family or whatever it is that they're doing um, and not being drawn away from, from that's a know, great intimacy. Idea. Yeah, because people will set that type of away message to go on vacation. Yeah. But if you had just a canned response set 
for, I mean, let's say your boss or coworkers email you at all hours of the night. So if you had this canned response of, I am spending time with my family right now, I will get back to you. You don't even have to explain it. That's true. Yeah. You know, like there's, it's just like, I have health boundaries. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I just, you know, this is not like your emergency is not my emergency. I'm taking care of myself now. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm sure you could set that up. I mean, Google Gmail. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I'm sure they don't email you late at night after they get that message a couple times. They realize, okay, this person has boundaries. So I'll wait till the morning to email them. Or maybe it jogs a little idea in their mind of, huh, maybe I should try the same thing. Yeah, I think that those kind of messages do spread. I think it's true. Like, you know, that if, if, if you are really holding up your own health boundaries, people around you notice it. And then they think about their own, like, wow, you know, what am I doing up at 3 a.m., like, obsessing over this project? You know, like, hmm, is this going to be, <laughs> how am I going to be tomorrow morning versus that guy who's just totally not, you know, who's downstating? Yeah. A friend the other day was saying as well, at, if you're a manager or, you know, the CEO or boss type person at some company that, you know, when you send those emails, it's really jarring to people because they get it at 11 PM and then feel like they have to respond, but to set your email on a timer. So even if you are sending emails at 11 PM to be kind and sent, set the timer so that it sends at 8 AM the next morning. Totally. So you still type it and you still get your work done, but you don't make all these other people feel frenzied and like they have to stop everything they're doing and respond to it. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that that really brings up the question of sort of, you know, who's, who is the person in power here and what is the message that they're sending? I think it's much harder for an employee Mm -hmm. to express their health boundaries and feel safe about that. than if there was somebody at a higher level saying, this is, I don't do work after 8 PM or, you know, Mm -hmm. and and I start work at 8 AM. Um, something of that nature that gives people the sense of like, and I don't expect you to either. Yeah. Wow. That would be a great normalization Mm -hmm. across society. I don't know if, I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but it'd be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are places that it does happen and I, but it's a rarer place. Yeah. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I think it happens more in Europe. Mm -hmm. They really seem to, uh, have it figured out more in terms of a work-life balance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Americans are the least likely to take vacation days Uh and, uh, you know, Europeans have six weeks of vacation guaranteed. Right. Yeah. I have a client right now who moved abroad for the summer and they said that they went into the office the other day at nine o'clock in the morning and nobody was there. (laughs) Nobody kind of sauntered in until around 11 or noon. Um, But then they realized why, why am I here every day at 9am? I'm going to start coming in around 11 or noon and then started having this amazing morning where they go for a run in the park and they have a leisurely breakfast and they read the paper. Um, And so I think there's also been experiments in the United States and other countries of if you work fewer hours, you probably get the same amount done because there's less kind of idle time. So it's not necessarily that you're less productive if you work six hours a day versus 10. No, I mean, in fact, it just increases burnout if you overwork right. yourself, right? If you just continue to, if you if you have that always on constant pressure without any breaks um, and without knowing that you're going to take a real break in the summertime or the wintertime, whenever it's going to be, and just get out of that whole environment and you just keep on, you keep the pressure on, you know, you, you burn out your resources. Mm-hmm. And so then you're left with sort of like, what is the meaning of all this? I don't even want to be here anymore. Yeah, that's never a good headspace to be in, mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I mean, this is so important, right? Is is for I, I would say I'm going to speak to the to the people in power because I think those are the investments that we really need right now. So as as much as every individual has. Um, have health boundaries and, and, you know, can really prioritize their downstate, they can really only do it in the context of a community and a corporation and a government that also honors their downstates. And I think that the idea that, that businesses can incentivize 
greater healthy boundaries, um, you know, financially incentivized by giving people insurance boosts um, and giving people um, extra you know, the, the money that they save when someone's actually walking more or doing more exercise or losing weight or whatever it is that they can financially incentivize because they're saving money, right? They have, and then they have people who are a happier employment employee uh, group that want to stay and, and, and they have better traction at keeping employees in an environment where they're really respecting people's downstates. So I, I, I really believe that, it's on the onus is on leadership um, to be giving more attention to people's health um, and specifically to how much time and how much effort they're giving and how much money they're backing up um, the idea of people's health. So true. I love that response. I think uh, have very unique one. I've heard about 150 responses in, in recording these episodes, but that was... <laughs> That was a good one. I agree 100%. Um, where can listeners follow and find you? Um, I have a website, sarahmednick.com, and I give talks to corporations and uh, different books and even like book groups and things. Uh, and so they can book me through my speaking agent there on the website. Um, and also I'm on Twitter. And so you can follow me, Sarah underscore Mednick. Um, and I post a lot and talk a lot to people there, or you can contact me through Twitter. Awesome. Well, I'll put links to all those places in the show notes. And I just want to thank you so much again for sharing this today. I love the unique take on upstate and downstate. I think these are new terms for our audience. And so I think everybody's going to learn a ton from you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.